of your work. On this show, we meet people who have carved out success by their own definition. I'm David Cadavy, best-selling author and entrepreneur. Our guest today ran his business while sailing around the world with his whole family. Paul Bennett is CEO and co-founder of Context Travel. Context Travel organizes high-quality tours around the world given by historians, authors, PhDs, and the like. I took a Context tour myself when I was at the Acropolis in Athens a few months back, and it was orders of magnitude better than any large group tour that I've ever been on. I met Paul through a friend recently and instantly felt he was exactly the type of person I'd want to have on my podcast were I ever to have one, and um, now I do, so here we go. Uh, In this conversation, you're going to find lots of lessons about overcoming your fears and turning nebulous dreams into actionable steps. Chances are there are some dreams that you have that aren't nearly as crazy as sailing around the world while running a business, and you may find some parallels there. We also wax about some of the benefits of travel. Uh, (laughs) Corollaries to this can be found uh, in the mini lives mini episode that I did a while back. Here's the interview. Do you have a WordPress site? If you do, I think you should use WP Engine. WP Engine makes WordPress hosting super easy. I, I personally used to waste a lot of time keeping WordPress up to date or trying to recover from getting hacked. And since I switched to WP Engine a few years ago, I don't have that problem anymore. Uh, so I have much more time left over to do things like run this podcast. I should also mention that I've tried a couple of other WordPress hosting services, and I did not have pleasant experiences. Um, Do you think having a site down for five days without a response from support is acceptable? I don't, uh, and WP Engine has never let me down like that, and I can even call them on the phone when I have a problem. Right now, you can get 20% off your first payment at cadavy.net slash WP Engine. You'd be supporting the show big time with this one. If you became a WP Engine customer, we'll end up getting $200. Speaking of which... Are you a freelancer who sets up clients on web hosts? WP Engine has an excellent affiliate program. If you sign up for their affiliate program at cadavy.net slash WP Affiliate, you'll earn $200 or up to several thousand dollars, depending on the size of the first payment, for each customer you refer. Here are those URLs again, cadavy.net slash WP Engine to sign up for WP Engine and cadavy.net slash WP Affiliate to sign up for their affiliate program. I'm here with Paul Bennett from Context Travel. Uh, Paul, could you first uh, start off telling us what Context is? So Context is uh, a travel business. We organize uh, tours that are led by university professors, architects, chefs, basically experts in a variety of different uh, topics in cities around the world. So you know, if you're going to Beijing and you want to visit the Forbidden City, and instead of just taking a tour with a tour guide, you wanted to meet a sinologist who'd written a book about uh, the Ming Dynasty, then you would go through us, we would make that happen. So kind of intellectual tours for the culturally curious. Yeah, and I actually went on a context tour in Athens, and it was fantastic. And uh, our tour guide, or I guess docent maybe I would say, was, I think she was a PhD candidate. Uh, I don't know if she had gotten her PhD yet. Um, 
but she was incredibly knowledgeable and a great tour guide. And it was, it was an incredible tour, so much better than kind of an out-of-the-box tour. Is that kind of what you're going for? Yeah, that's kind of the idea. It's, it's unscripted. Um, you're just with a really knowledgeable person. You know, we screen to make sure that they have social intelligence um, and, you know, natural teaching ability. But the idea is that it's a kind of impromptu um, encounter with a deeply knowledgeable person in a place where that knowledge has a lot of value. Yeah, and I love that. I mean, I could ask a question and she would really, she wouldn't be reading from a script or anything. She really knew the answer, you know? Yeah, yeah, like you're like a university professor, right? You know, you just ask them, uh, you know, a question about anything, and then they can just extemporaneously just, you know, riff on it. Yeah, and it was fascinating to me just to see just as a business because I think, like, when I mean, you mentioned authors and such, but I think in the case of someone who is a Ph.D. candidate who has a ton of knowledge, um, they have something very valuable to offer that is maybe kind of difficult to convert into money in a way. Um, but then there are people who are traveling around the world who have money because they're traveling around the world, and they are oftentimes intellectually curious people who want to learn uh, about the place. And so it's interesting how you're, there's some, there's like a little gap in the value there that, that you're filling in, in that, anyway, if you can talk about that. Yeah, we usually talk about it in terms of intrinsic versus economic value. Mm-hmm. So the a PhD in the humanities has incredible intrinsic value. She's knowledgeable, she's passionate, um, but the market doesn't really reward that. You know, a, a humanities professor, even in a top university, is paid, you know, really poorly. So the market doesn't recognize that intrinsic value, but a traveler does. So at some level, you could think of, you could boil context down with this sort of mechanism for helping, um, you know, people with high intrinsic value uh, realize that as as economic value. Yeah, I think that was exactly what was going on. I know that uh, on our tour, there was a, a couple who uh, they were retired and they were traveling around, and uh, it it seemed like they had uh, you know, just judging. They seemed like they had plenty of money to spend for tours and, and such. And and your your tours are, I, I believe, the price point was around eighty dollars or something for for that tour. It wasn't like your your ten dollar run of the mill tour that most people might take. Yeah, it's a little more expensive than a normal tour, partly because it's small, right? There's only six people on the tour, so right. it's really intimate. That's part of the formula, right? If you if you bring a really smart, knowledgeable person, you don't have a script, you say, great, just riff on a topic, you can't have 25 people there. Uh, that immediately shifts that into a one-way linear uh, narrative. But if you only have six people, now questions can be asked both ways, right? The docent can ask you questions. Hey, David, you know, what do you think about this? Or have you been there? What do you know about it? Or do you have questions? And then you can ask questions. Well, next thing you know, we have a real impromptu exchange of of ideas and learning, um, you know, that's kind of fueled by the knowledge of this person. So, yeah, small group, that makes it a little more expensive. Yeah, well, in our case, there were four people in the group. And so, yeah, it's a totally... um, you know, there's just some people who are obviously 
not going to pay more than $12 for a tour, but there's a lot of people who $80 for a tour is is really nothing. And when you consider that the exponentially higher value of, of the tour, uh, it makes sense. You've really got, you've really got a, a, a nice target customer there. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, for people who are, you know, le- who are thinking less stuff, more experiences and kind of shifting their investment <laughs> mm-hmm. that way. We're, we're great for that. Um, cause we're all about few, you know, very few things, lots of rich experiences. Yeah. And, so where around the world can people take tours? So as of today, we're in 37 cities worldwide. We, we only do big cities. Um, so New York, Beijing, well, not all big, um, but we're in, you know, all the, the major travel destinations worldwide, like New York and Paris, London, Rome. Um, a lot I was of in really, Athens. Yep, yeah. yeah, you're in Athens, right? We're also in Istanbul. Um, any city where there's a lot of history, culture, art um, that can be penetrated by someone with knowledge. So, you know, in your backyard, we're in Cartagena in Colombia. Mm-hmm. Um, we're also in uh, Rio and um, Buenos Aires in uh, Argentina. We opened up last year in Sydney, Australia and Melbourne, which was part of our, you know, my, my travels through that area. Bangkok and Hong Kong are both brand new cities, um, and then all over Europe, Prague, Vienna, Budapest, Barcelona, Madrid, Edinburgh, Dublin, um, you know, all, that, that's, our, that's our core, our bread and butters. Yeah, Europe. and I noticed uh, something at, uh, in your email signature, you, you mentioned that it's a, uh, it's a B corporation. I've heard a little bit about that, but I'm not sure if I understand it completely. Can you do, d- describe that? Yeah, so B Corp stands for Benefit Corporation, and the idea there is that it's a triple bottom line business. So we're not just looking at um, <clears throat> at profit and um, and uh, you know the asset value of the business, but also looking at what benefit does it bring to um, to local communities where we operate. What benefit does it bring to our employees? Um, there's an organization called B Corp. They're a nonprofit based here in, in Philadelphia, and they've been driving this idea to that um, a B Corp might replace an S Corp or a C Corp or an LLC as an actual designation. And there's a few states in the country that have adopted this. Um, and the thinking is that, you know, with a typical corporation, you're beholden to your shareholders. So, you know, in theory, a company like Context could be sued by its shareholders if it decided to you know, invest a bunch of its working capital in sustainability, right, or yeah. philanthropy, right? A shareholder could say, wait a minute, you're, you're squandering shareholder value. A B Corp designation allows you to legally, you know, protects you in that so that you can actually do things as a, as a social enterprise uh, and, and, and not be sued by shareholders. Uh, so contact, we became a certified B Corp uh, many years ago. Um, we were one of the first travel companies to become. Untours is the famous one uh, mm-hmm. that is a B Corp. But we've been a B Corp for a while, and, and we use it to kind of guide us in how we, we manage the company. And does that mean that you can just make whatever decision you want? Uh, how, is, uh, how is that guided? <laughs> of course. <laughs> no, it, it 
It means there's an auditing process, so you have to be doing certain things, um, and there's many different dimensions. So one area that we, we do work is in sustainability. We have a very low carbon footprint, um, which is easy to do as a walking tour company. We also uh, try to do a number of progressive things as an employer. Partly we just do it because it makes good business sense. We feel like we get the best um, employees that way, but we do mm -hmm. things like unlimited vacation and 12-month maternity leave and, you know, stuff like that to try to make context a good place to work. And then the third big dimension for us is we run a nonprofit foundation called the Context Foundation for Sustainable Travel, and it runs programs in many of our cities where we operate that are um, either mitigating uh, the negative impact of tourism, so, you know, big tours overrunning Florence, we try to do things to to you know mitigate that impact, or we do things that try to bolster the positive impact of tourism. And, and in that front, we run a scholarship program for inner city uh, high school students here in the United States mm -hmm. that take them out of their high schools and out of their communities for seven to ten days, and we send them on a whirlwind trip with their teachers. Uh, to Europe and, and sort of overwhelm them and blow their mind with cultural heritage. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that has to be, I mean, I know that I did a study abroad back in, you know, oh, I don't even want to say how long ago, but that totally blew me away. So I can imagine that that has got to be an incredible experience for them. Yeah, I mean, imagine you're a kid in, you know, a pretty tough urban situation, not a lot of money, maybe a broken home, um, and you, you have no passport you've never left your state. Maybe you've never even left your city before. And all of a sudden, bam, you have a passport and you're in Paris. It's amazing to see these kids sort of wake up and challenge themselves on, you know, on kind of fundamental cultural stuff like history and monuments and food and language. <laughs> it's, uh, it's amazing. We have a bunch of videos of this. Uh, I, I actually never tire of watching them. Or to even get to see, I don't know, wherever you, where you, wherever you grow up, people have a certain kind of set of concerns or values, and then you go live in another culture, and you realize, like, yeah. that it's completely different, and it it completely rearchitects your own brain in the way that you approach your environment. So you actually get to see that in these these kids yourself. Yeah, one of my favorite stories. We had one of the earliest. Uh, winners on this program. I met this this young woman. She came over as a high school senior, and you know she she was a very good student. So she was planning on going to college. She was going to go to the local um, community college in Sacramento, uh, California, where we run this program. She was totally transformed by this in the way that travel only travel can really do. She went back to Sacramento. She ended up applying to Harvard. She was like, I can do this. Kidding me? Why can't I do this? She Might not just, have considered just, it otherwise, right? Yeah, exactly. Just opened her mind, you know? And you, you think, well, why would travel open someone's mind to that possibility? But it it does that. It, it gets you out of yourself. It begin, you begin to look at yourself critically. You start to look at your community critically. I don't mean that in a bad way. It's good criticism. You're just thinking more about how does mm -hmm. everything fit together in a, in a global perspective and in a, in a historical perspective. And it, it, it emboldens the curious at least. And, and this, this girl was curious. So she came back and applied to Harvard. Yeah. I, mean, I know from my experience, just uh, traveling, uh, I guess it, 
makes you realize that people that you hear about in movies or or you see in a movie or you see on TV that they're really just kind of people. And even though you're from this small microcosm, you might think that that makes you that you're somehow different from them, but that whatever a human, another human has done is something that conceivably you can do as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing again with these scholarship students, so many of them connect on a personal level with, you know, great artists like Michelangelo. So you start seeing these like these videos they produce and they're sort of talking about, well, Michelangelo did this and did that, like he was a peer or something. And mm -hmm. it just, yeah, travel can kind of break down all those incredible boundaries we draw. Oh, cool. That's a, that's a, that's an interesting uh, diversion, I guess, from what I even thought that we might t talk about. That's, that's really cool. Um, so how did you get started with Context? What was the genesis of this business? It was sort of an accident, like a lot of um, good businesses are. Uh, so my, my background is as a journalist back in the you know, pre-digital age in the 90s. Um, I worked as a, as a magazine journalist, a freelancer for a, a wide range of different types of magazines. And my wife, Lonnie, <clears throat> was an art director. Uh, and this was sort of in the dot-com era, 99-2000. And when all of that exploded, I was also writing for a bunch of dot-com magazines, and all that exploded, and we both lost our jobs. We, um, we decided to take some time off, so we bought a sailboat, and we left New York City, and we spent two years sailing through uh, Central America. We, um, we sailed across the Atlantic to Europe, and we were in um, we were in Morocco for 9/11, and that was um, you know, life changing, as it was for so many people. And a few a uh, few months later, we wound up in Rome, Italy. And uh, at this point, we'd been sailing for two years. We'd been talking about you know what was the next phase of our lives. Um, and at that point, you know maybe it was being on a boat. We realized we didn't want to go back to jobs. Um, we wanted to start our own thing. And we had been casting about for different business ideas. When we were in Guatemala, we thought about uh, starting a coffee plantation. Uh, when we were in um, Spain and Gibraltar, we thought about starting a marine supply import business. We lived on a boat, so we knew a little bit about that. So we had all these little business plans that we would hash through. And by the time we got to Rome, uh, there were some interesting pressures on us. Lonnie was pregnant with our first daughter. Um, we had no home to go to back in the United States because uh, it's still at that point, um, you couldn't get below uh, 14th Street in New York, right? Which is where our apartment was. Um, a lot of our friends had left New York. The, um, you know, the recession was still on. In fact, now it was even worse. Post 9-11, there was no, the travel industry was falling apart and magazines hadn't come back and we were out of money. So, you know, what a great time to take a big risk and start a business. So that's sort of what we did. Um, probably wouldn't have done that now in retrospect, but at the, at the time I was in my early thirties and we were like, we have nothing to lose. So. We looked around us in Rome, and it was pretty easy to spot the opportunity. You know, in, in Rome, uh, tourism is king. It's the main economy. Uh, at that point, this is 2001, 2001. I was in Rome uh, from 9-11 to 
December, so I was probably there the same time you were. Yeah, we, we rocked up in Rome in, in November. So just on the heels of 9-11, yeah. So <laughs> we were there when yep. you were there, and we were thinking about this idea and having a baby. Stella, our oldest daughter, was born uh, the following June. And, you know, we looked around. So you were there. You saw, you know, tourism was all big tour groups, you know, huge groups of 25, 30 people following an umbrella, going into the Colosseum. Uh, and at the same time, there were all these really smart people uh, most of them were there on fellowships, finishing their PhDs. They were at the American Academy in Rome, the British School in Rome. You know, it's a real Rome is like, like several cities around the world. It's a real locus. They were for probably the, they were probably the people that were uh, giving me and my class walking tours um, around Rome. You know, early morning, all of us maybe a little hungover, and things like that. It was probably yeah. those same people. Yeah. Yeah, on-site learning. Exactly, it was those people. And we, we were lucky. We were in a university, so we we had that. We had those great walking tours yeah. and experiences, but it wasn't easy for other people to access that. And that was our business model. We were like, hey, we could commercialize that and give independent travelers, adults, the same opportunity that these college kids are having. Yeah, and so we we launched it literally from our kitchen table, uh, and. Our first corporate disaster was our daughter uh, pulling a computer off the table there in the first few weeks and destroying mm -hmm. it on a thousand glittering bits on the floor. Um, but we just we just bootstrapped it. We had no investment or anything like that. We just started uh, organizing these scholars to lead tours, and it it took off. You know, it was a new idea, um, and there was an appetite for it in the market. And then slowly over the last. 13 years, we've expanded it out to 37 cities and, you know, professionalized it a bit. So, um, yeah, I, I love how you just said, oh, we went sailing for two years um, very casually. I think for most people, there's maybe a little bit of a cognitive leap to go to understand going sailing for two years. Um, <laughs> you were already an avid sailor, I take it. Yeah, I grew up around boats um, as a kid. I'd done some sailing and racing. Um, I grew up in Connecticut on the coast. But then I had been away from it for about 10 years. I did my my college in, um, in the Midwest and the Southwest and lived in New York City and hadn't really done much. And so it was really one of those late night um, dinner conversations Lonnie and I had, we were like, God, what do you really want to do with in life? Mm. And I had always dreamed, I really want to sail around the world. And she was like, me too. <laughs> and so it became one of these conversations that we had through our 20s of uh, someday we're going to buy a boat and go sailing. And so when the, when the dot-com crash happened and, you know, all those things were kind of conspiring against us, we're like, you know what, let's Let's not wait and do it when we retire or anything like that. Let's go now. Let's go do it real quick before we have kids and we have this moment um, in front of us. So we, we bought a boat. You know, you don't just do it in a day. So we bought a boat. Um, we actually lived on it in New York Harbor for um, half a year, spent a lot of time fixing it up and putting equipment aboard. Lonnie had never done um, extensive sailing. I had never been offshore in a boat before. So although I'd done a lot of sailing, I'd never crossed an ocean. So our first trial, um, we sailed from New York to Bermuda and then back. Uh, and we did that one month in the summer. 
And it worked out really well. We fell in love with it, and we're like, okay, we're gonna we're gonna do this. And two months later, we left. So I like that you you made like a little test, yep, um, to try it out before you totally committed to to taking off. Yeah, there's a lot of technical problems that you have to solve when you want to travel by boat. I mean, you need a boat, and it has to be safe. You have to have certain equipment. You have to do some training and think about you know worst case scenarios like sinking, <laughs> other things like that. So um, that that test was all about, you know, testing that, you know, all the training we had done and the equipment we bought. Let's go out and see, does it work, A? And B, you know, does this fit? We were really nervous on that first trip uh, of what this would do to our relationship. You know, it was a small mm -hmm. boat, it was only 38 feet. I don't know what the square footage was inside. I don't know, 15 feet, square, square feet. So, you know, you're on top of each other, and it can really test a marriage. In fact, in our preparations, we'd read a lot of books about couples that had gone sailing, and then the trip had ended in, in divorce. Wow. Um, the typical trajectory is the man really has this, this dream, of, and it's a conceptual dream, sailing around the world. And the, the woman is like, well, okay, that sounds like fun. I like, I like sun. And then they get out there and she's like, I want to go slower or I want to stay here. I don't want to cross an ocean, whatever. And he's like, no, 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 we have to go. We have to go. And the marriage breaks up. So hmm. Lonnie uh, made me promise that that wouldn't happen with us. And so we decided whatever we do, we're just going to enjoy it. And if it's not enjoyable, we won't do it. So we'll sail around. We may go only as far as the Bahamas. And then we'll take it from there. And, and through that first trip over two years, we literally made our decision to keep going every month. Oh, let's continue on, you know, to Central America. Okay, let's cross back and go across the Atlantic. Okay, let's. We just kept, you know, making that decision, never really getting ourselves backed up against the corner of, oh, we have to accomplish this one big goal of sailing around the world. Were there any particular worries or blocks that were holding you back from getting started with this sailing trip? Well, I mean, so I mentioned it was a technical problem. So, you know, dotting the I's technically and crossing the T's was a hurdle, right? We had to get the right kind of boat. We had to research what kind of boat you would use to cross an ocean. Um, we had to get the equipment. We had to learn how to use it. We had to figure out the timing. What's the safest way to do it? Um, so there was a lot of, lot of research. But I would say the biggest hurdles are more psychological. Um, our own psychology and the psychology of our family and, and friends. You know, most people don't do this. So when you sit down and say, hey, what do you guys, you know, what's your plan for the summer? And your response is, hey, we're going, <laughs> we're putting all our stuff in storage and we're going to take off on a boat and I don't know when we'll ever be back. And in fact, we've never been back to New York. That was the end of it. Um, that's a hard conversation to have. So there's, there's the psychology of your friends. Our family also really didn't want us to go sailing. Um, they thought it was dangerous. They didn't know, they thought it'd be inconvenient, and it was for them to come visit us. And then you you know, you know, have your own self-doubts, something you haven't done before. Is it gonna work out? Are we gonna get along? Is it gonna be safe? Um, and you know, getting over those hurdles is, you know, that, that's a process. Um, the good thing about it, kind of like Kind of working out it is once you get over those hurdles and you get accustomed to jumping through them, it becomes a lot easier. So when we took a second trip uh, 
from uh, to 11 years later, it uh, was a lot easier. And, and that trip had a lot more at stake. We had children at that point and a business, sizable business. Um, those hurdles were actually easier to, to surmount because we had already trained ourselves to think unconventionally. Yeah, this is something I found myself in. Uh, I typically will go places for a month or two at a time. I've got to get my apartment ready and rent it out to somebody and then go to a new place. And and uh, I've definitely my nervous system just seems to have really relaxed over anything that may have yeah. concerned me in the beginning. And it just gets easier and easier. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You almost habituate yourself to you know, weird life changes that baffle other people, and it starts to become the norm for you. When people would voice concerns like your friends or family, did that get to you and and make your doubts worse? Um, didn't get to me. It definitely heightened my doubts, but I think in a, in a healthy way. Um, you know, look, sailing is dangerous. You can sink and drown and all of that. So you want to be as conservative as possible. And so it, it helped me focus on that singular problem, solving that problem. And when I went out with kids, you know, there's even more at stake. So, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't resent that at all. You just can't let it you know, limit you. You have to let, you know, channel it so that it focuses you on the right things. And in this case, it focused us on safety, preparing the boat and being prepared ourselves for, for crossing, you know, major bodies of water. I think a lot of people fantasize about things such as going sailing for a couple of years or going and living in another city for a little while. Um, but mm -hmm. I like how you, you eventually had to get methodical and start breaking down all the different things that would really just be overwhelming when you're when you're first thinking about it. Was there any particular point at which it went from being a dream to okay, here's the things that we have to tackle to make this happen? Yeah, there was definitely a tipping point in both trips. So in the first trip, uh, you know, I mentioned it sort of happened in the context of um, of the um, dot com meltdown. Uh, so as that was happening and we saw people losing jobs, uh, we, you know, there was a tipping point. It literally happened when we were trying to buy a house or, you know, an apartment in New York and we'd been saving money and this was the dot-com boom. So we were making more and more money. We were doing better than ever. We had a ton, we had what we thought was a ton of cash and we kept going out to these, these open houses and getting outbid by people who had a lot more cash and the prices were going up. I mean, typically at that point, maybe it's no different today in Manhattan, but we would go to a property that was listed for, I don't know, these are, these are 1990s prices. So, you know, it might be listed for $350,000 and you would go in, you know, knowing that you probably could pay 325 and you would leave because somebody bid 475. So we had a lot of those. And it was after one of those, I remember distinctly, we went to buy this place in the East Village. We could afford it. And it went for, you know, 35% over the asking price on the floor right there. And we went out and had a drink at this little Italian restaurant in the East Village called Il Bagato, which was around the corner from our house. And it was that night. We had, again, the same conversation we had had many, many times. God, someday I want to go sailing. I don't know who said it. Lonnie, me, one of us we were like, you know what? 
fuck it, let's do it. <laughs> We've got some money. Let's buy a boat. Let's just do it. And the next day we started methodically figuring out, well, what kind of boat do we need? What equipment do we need? Where would we go? How would we work? You know, and start solving those problems in a very kind of procedural manner. Wow. It's interesting how there was kind of this, this other goal that you were pursuing that in a way you sort of realize, oh, this doesn't really match up with what I'm what I am willing to put forth in, in terms of money and you kind of maybe were caught up in this this bubble thing and and yep. you know, after a while of of maybe having some bids that you gotta outbid on, that was enough to make you reevaluate and reframe the whole picture. Yep. Yeah, it was it was chance on some level. I mean, one of the best things that ever happened to me was not being able to buy a house in Manhattan. Yeah, I mean, I can think of a, a moment similar once when I was uh, said I wanted an, a certain apartment somewhere in, in Palo Alto, California, I think, and mm-hmm. and uh, somebody else took it took it like he had been there fifteen minutes earlier than me, and I ended up living in San Francisco instead, and that was a whole other formative experience so much better very butterfly effect yeah though in your case just exponentially different imagine if you would have won one of those last bids yep yeah well in in my case because it led to sailing which then led to context which then led to more sailing later on in life so yeah truly if we hadn't taken that first leap um, you know, I'm not sure how things would have turned out, probably far less interestingly. And you said earlier, I don't know if I would have done this now, um, when you were starting context, can you dig into that a little bit? Well, yeah, I think as you get older, you get more conservative, you know, and you're thinking less risk, um, prone. Uh, so yeah, if I, now I, I don't, I don't, I think I'm a little, um, more risk prone than a typical 46 year old. Um, but, uh, 45 year old, not quite 46 yet. The, um, uh, because I've, I've habituated myself to that. But if I was just starting out faced with what I was faced at 30 right now, and the choice was, Hey, dump everything and go sailing. I'm probably would be a lot harder at 45 than at 30. I think that's just, just normal. Well, I mean, you were talking about the, the situation of being in Rome, and you were out of money, and I mean, oh, right. was there yeah. something you might have been done differently? Yeah, well, I think the the natural feeling when you run out of money and you're barefoot oh, and pregnant is to is to run home, right? Not stay in some place. We were in a foreign country. We didn't speak the language. We were learning the language. We didn't speak the language. Da, da, da. So we stayed. And we started a business, which are two really kind of risky, unknown things. Um, but we, I, we felt emboldened, I think, from the travel. We'd been in a lot of uncomfortable situations, uh, whether it was you know, cruising up the Rio Dulce in Guatemala, crossing the Atlantic, being stuck in the doldrums in the middle of the Atlantic, storms, you know, all these kinds of things. So it, it, was, it was dicey in those months uh, where, you know, we found ourselves in Rome trying to sort things out. But we had some of the tools that, that allowed us to do it. Yeah, because you had been in more serious crises before. Mm. Your nervous systems perhaps weren't freaking out quite as much as they might have yeah. otherwise. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's the biggest danger is you freak out, not that you, you know, do something wrong. It's just that you, you freak out and you squander the opportunity. Yeah, and, you know, so many of us might freak out in a situation where we're out of money or we don't know what we're going to do or maybe it's something as simple as, oh, I would like to quit my job, but I don't have the guts to. And when you compare that to actually being in the middle of the Atlantic with a a storm around you when you're truly in danger, I'm sure that uh, right. the comparison makes a difference. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is why a lot of people climb mountains and do all sorts of risky things is to try to put life in perspective. No need to freak out over a first world problem. Right. And so when you were starting context, how much thinking was there over all right, how can we design this business so that we can go sailing again? <laughs> um, there, oh boy, good question. I would say not a lot of conscious thinking. Mostly we were concerned with how do we make, how do we design a really successful business? Um, we were in Rome, we stayed in Rome for five years um, and we had two children there. So we were pretty permanent at the beginning um, but then as we grew the business and we realized, oh, this business can work in a lot of places that look a lot like Rome, Florence, Venice, then we went to Paris, London. Um, the first move we made was we moved to Paris, um, and we did that opportunistically. Uh, we, we could have expanded the business there and not moved there, but we were like, oh, let's, let's use this as a vehicle for doing something that we want to do with our lives. Um, and then, you know, from there, we then expanded to the rest of the world. It was, it was further on where we realized, okay, we want to go sailing again. Um, we need to, to design this business so that we can do that. Um, and we, we sort of made that shift around 2010. Um, so our oldest was about eight years old. And we could look forward in the future or seven, I guess. And we could see there was a time when she would be um, 11-ish and our youngest would be five. And that would be a really key time to go sailing again. And we, we just learned so much from the first trip. I mean, if, if, if you love travel, there's no better way, in my opinion, to travel than by boat. Uh, and we, we've held that through our lives and we thought we knew we wanted to take our kids on that kind of a trip. We, this the second trip we planned at a much longer horizon for about three or four years we had it in mind and the main issue for us was setting up the business so that we could manage it from afar wow so it was roughly eight years between your first uh, two-year trip and then your next trip with your with your kids uh, it was about yeah about uh, 10, 10 years. We went, we took off on the second trip in 2013 and we finished the first trip. Uh, sorry, about 11 years, finished the first trip in 2002. Hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I guess that, yeah, that makes sense. No, not, not have a math degree, but I think that's how it ends up. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. what were some of the logistical changes that you had to make in order to make this business work while you were on a boat? in the middle of the ocean. Yeah, I mean, luckily our business is, 
is spread out around the world, right? We operate in 37 cities around the world, so a whole half of our business is just scattered to the winds. We have people who work for us in Hong Kong, Istanbul, London, um, and all of that's manu managed virtually. I mean, I, I, I do make trips and see people face-to-face, -face, but a lot of it is via Skype and Google Hangout. So we have that culture kind of baked into the business. But the other half of the business is here in, in Philadelphia. Uh, and I had actually gotten myself into a bit of a rut uh, over, we've been here for six years. Um, I'd been coming into the office every day like a real worker <laughs> and realized that a lot of business processes and just sort of cultural things were revolving around me. We're a small business and I, Lonnie and I are the founders of it. So we sort of fell into this trap of the, the owner founder um, where people can't think on their own without running it by me, getting my buy-in, checking things, little things. And it's, it's really not structural, it's more just cultural. So I had to break that. And, and one of the first things I did was stop going into the office. Uh, so I, I started you know, a year or two before we left working a lot more from home. I only live two blocks from the office. So there's no good reason why I should stay at home rather than come in. But I started just doing it on purpose several days a week, just habituating people. I gave up my desk and I did things like that. Um, we also had to make a lot of little structural changes in terms of what my role was. I had to look at what is, what's my role in the business and anything that's operational that requires me to operate it, take me out of it. Um, so there were a few promotions that we had to do. We had to do a few hires and kind of reorganize a few things. I offshored some stuff to some virtual assistants and some offshore bookkeepers and things like that. Um, you know, kind of that four-minute work week or four-hour work week, whatever that, that, that book is. <laughs> I'm not sure how. You were, you how were ahead of Tim. And so. <laughs> um, you know, just did, did some of those things. Um, but again, kind of the bigger thing was sort of a mindset for me and for uh, the people that I work with, just getting them to think a lot less of me. <laughs> I'm not as important as you think I am. Um, and then setting up structures so that when I was traveling, I could dive into things very quickly and help out when needed, but then step back. So sort of strategic stuff. So one of the things I did is I, I have a meeting with pretty much everybody one-on-one -on -one in the business. Um, and I, I have the, that every month. It used to be spread out all over the month. I now do it all on one day. It's a terrible day. <laughs> it's back-to-back -back, you know, Skype meetings. But that allowed me then, when we were in really uh, remote places, to not stress about, oh, I have to get to a good Wi-Fi for this meeting. I just stressed once a month, a couple of days ahead, oh, we need to sail to this island because I hear there's great Wi-Fi because I have 12 hours of nonstop meetings. Mm -hmm. What level of internet access do you have when you're at sea? Oh, it was up and down. So we had, you know, the the... Backup, backup in all things was we had a satellite phone with email. So I had email whenever I wanted it. It was a bit expensive, but not terrible. We had all sorts of compression software and stuff that, so I, I could send, receive email anytime. Then we had um, a Wi-Fi booster antenna on the boat. So if we were in a harbor and there was a Wi-Fi signal, then we could find it, boost it onto the boat and use that. And it ends up that there are a lot of places not in Europe, in the United States, where there's unsecured Wi-Fi. So you can just hop on Wi-Fi still in 
the Caribbean, Central America, and certainly in the South Pacific. Or if you couldn't hop on, then there were you know, things in the harbor that you could pay for you know, $5 a day for, for Wi-Fi access. We used internet cafes. We made friends with people with houses on shore. You know, we, we basically did anything we could. We were one of the few boats out there that was working while sailing. A lot of the people were taking sabbaticals. So then we became known as the boat that, if, that, if our, our boat was called Daphne, people began to say, if Daphne's in that harbor, it must have good Wi-Fi. Because <laughs> we were the Wi-Fi hunters. So I, I guess I, I think that as somebody who hasn't sailed around the world, I imagine like, oh, you're in the middle of the ocean most of the time. But it sounds to me like you are on land or close to land most of the time. Yeah. So we're on the boat the whole time, but we're in a harbor 90% of the time. So the second trip, uh, we sailed from the Caribbean to Australia. We went in the other, other direction. And we crossed a lot of ocean, what, 8,000 miles, 11,000 miles of ocean, something like that. But 90% of the time, we were anchored in a harbor someplace. So really, there's just maybe one or two days there where you're uh, at a time when you are really at sea and you can't even get the decent Wi-Fi. So in, in the Caribbean, it was, yeah, stretches of one, two days between an island. Um, there were a couple of three-day passages from Trinidad to Bonaire was a three-day passage, and from Curaçao to Cartagena was a three-day passage. And then when you get into the Pacific, it's a lot different. So it was a 10-day passage from Panama to the Galapagos, and it was an 18-day passage from the Galapagos to French Polynesia. So you have much bigger chunks mm -hmm. of long-distance sailing uh, in the Pacific, South Pacific. So if you've got one of those 18-day passages coming up, what sort of preparations did you did you make in the business to prepare for that? So make sure that the website's functioning. <laughs> <laughs> um, make sure that nothing super uh, big is going to happen while I'm gone. So again, technically, no website launches or anything like that happening while I'm I'm at sea. Um, a a check-in with all staff before I leave and then a scheduled check-in for when I, I get, again, I'm checking in once a month, so a 30-day period without talking to me, you know, uh, via Skype is not a big deal. Um, and then if there were any operational things, I still had my hands in some financial operational things, moving money around and that kind of stuff, so I would just do a full sort of CFO audit of the business before I took off to make sure cash flow and everything was fine for, um, for 30 days, um, but you know that that was about it. And you still had access to email, so yeah, some things, some communication could happen. And phone, right? It was a sat phone, so if I had to oh, get okay. on the phone and talk to somebody, I could have. Yeah, yeah. You probably weren't doing it all the time, though. No, no, very, very infrequently. So our schedule on an 18-day passage, Lonnie and I divide the sailing um, into six-hour chunks. And I take the the middle of the night chunk. So from midnight to six in the morning is my shift. And then she's on six in the morning till noon. I'm noon to six p.m. Blah, blah, blah. So typically, when I came on watch at midnight, I would download all my email, and then I would work and write all my emails and upload them again. So about ninety minutes of that. Then I would hang out and drink espresso and look at the moon and da, 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 da. and then I would download all my email again about 90 minutes later. And usually I'd have all these responses because the middle of the night for me in the Pacific is 
the middle mm -hmm. of the day in, in, in Europe and, and morning for um, the United States. So everybody would, I trained everybody, if you get an email from me, respond you know, quickly and then I'll, I'll respond to you again. So then I would download again and do another round of emails. So I would usually have a back and forth every night via email with whoever I needed to. Mm. So, and so basically somebody has to be awake on the boat. The, the whole time and that was yeah okay yep. just that yeah <laughs> yeah someone's awake all the time now single-handed sailors break that rule all the time and and kind of mm -hmm. sleep but for us yeah someone's awake all the time and that that's critical when you're sailing through like in the caribbean there was lots of boat traffic and stuff like that there oh, was yeah. nothing in the south pacific we left the galapagos we didn't see a thing for 18 days <sighs> what's nothing. that like psychologically it's awesome. It's yeah. really great. I mean, it's existential. It's dark. It's light. It's euphoric. It's it's everything. Wow. Yeah. And so now that you are on land, um, are there any things that you sort of set up to to work the business logistics while you were away that have remained and that you don't think would have uh, ended up that way had you not left? Benefits yeah, that I way? think. Uh, I think the whole backing out of operational stuff, I was in a real hole operationally in the business where things really had to gravitate around me. And now in being back, I'm not stepping into that. So I actually still don't come into the office very often. I, in fact, I don't even have a desk in our office. Or I had one until this morning. We hired a marketing manager and he took my desk. Mm -hmm. do, you um, find things, so, do you find things slipping back into habits that, that might make things tricky next time you're... You're on ERC? Yeah, I can see that danger, definitely. There's always that magnet. Oh, he's nearby. Let's ask him something. I'm nearby. Oh, let me hop in something. So, yeah, there are operational discussions and meetings that I, I have to consciously not get involved in. Um, and I think that's, that's healthy for everybody. I, I, I partly do it for selfish reasons, but I think it's also really good for the people who work around me. Um, I think it's hard when you work in a small business that's founder operated. Um, you have that that problem of the personality of the founder, uh, and it's I think it's really healthy to strip that out for people. Um, now, what about the logistics of uh, sailing with children? I would think that that would be uh, another thing that make, would make a lot of people say, oh, well, we can't do this. I mean, I, I, have, I don't have children, so I don't really know what it's like. But I have friends who might say, oh, we, we can't travel because we have kids. And they're talking about traveling where they're on land <laughs> and mm -hmm. not on a boat. Yeah. So, I mean, of the three big elements of this last trip, um, the sailing part was the easiest. The running the business was the next hardest thing. And the hardest thing was homeschooling our kids. That was tough. Um, and, and, you know, like all tough things, it was incredibly demoralizing at the beginning. And then we figured out how to do it. And the last, the second year was, was fantastic. Um, but that, that was a real challenge um, to understand how to teach our kids, how, what's their learning style, how to communicate with them in a whole new way. Um, how to organize that whole project so that they got the most out of it and it worked for our family. Th that was a very tough nut to crack. Uh, were, were there any big lessons learned there? Yeah. So when we set off, 
uh, we had this lofty idea that we would have an unstructured approach to homeschooling because the trip itself was so educational. So every time we got to a cool place, we would structure our curriculum around it. Well, guess what? We're not teachers, <clears throat> so we don't have a skill set to fall back on. Uh, and it was really hard to just bingo, come up with a curriculum for three very different age levels. We had a five-year-old when we left off, when we left. Uh, we had a um, an five-year-old, an eight-year-old, and a 10-year-old just turning 11. And so teaching them all uh, simultaneously without a skill set as a teacher, without a curriculum, was a disaster. So and it, and it devolved into the kids were unhappy, we were unhappy, we were bickering, you know, trying to figure this out. In the second year, we got a curriculum. Now it was a it was a loose curriculum. It was it was structured around humanities, so it had a, a language arts component, a reading component, and a history component. We got a language curriculum and we got a math curriculum. We kind of cobbled these things together, but it gave the days structure. So there was expectations. The kids knew that there was certain expectation. We knew sort of how to follow. We could fall back on it, and then we could riff off of it. So if we were in you know, a really amazing place. We just put the curriculum aside for the day or we take it with us and go do it on site, like at a Polynesian archeological site in, in uh, Nukuhiva or anything like that. Um, that made it a lot more successful. Mm -hmm. And then structure, you know, we structured every day. Uh, we would, the kids would, would meet me at the table in the, in the cockpit at 8.30 with their plan for the day. What are you gonna do in school? And then for the next four hours, I would just go, they would each go to each part of the boat, wherever they were going to work, and I would just make rounds and go and visit them. What are you working on? And obviously, the five-year-old needed a lot more hands-on than the 11-year-old. And we would just do that up until um, 1230, and then everybody would break at 1230. We'd have lunch, and everybody jump overboard and leave me alone. Wow. And it sounds like you're putting in so much work into making that curriculum that would work along with your travels. Is that something that you've shared with other families that are in the same situation? Or is, you know, that, is there anything unique about it that would that would make it helpful for somebody who's sailing with, with, with kids specifically? Well, I think actually it would work. I think the big lessons could be applied to any untraditional peripatetic lifestyle with kids. So if you're in an RV traveling around Australia or the US or you're Airbnb, 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 um, <laughs> month to month to month around the world, which some people are doing, you know, um, you could definitely, this is portable, right? Um, you could take it with you. I think the key lessons are have a structure every day, have um, a structure that you can fall back on in terms of curriculum, and then just have an open mind for riffing off of it. Um, one of the things about sailing that's really great is there are a lot of people doing it. So when, and they all follow the same path. So when we went through the Panama Canal, we met up with dozens of other families on boats who were sailing across the South Pacific. And we shared information, boat information, homeschooling information. In fact, we would even, we would often get together with other families. There's this one family from Sweden and the parents were PhD chemists and they'd taken a sabbatical. And so we would pair up with them for lessons. I would do the humanities stuff. Um, we were studying Latin on the boat, so I would teach the kids Latin. And then Gustav would take the kids and do a science um, curriculum on his boat. Uh, it was So we did a lot of that kind of stuff. It was great. This is something that I've found with 
traveling or one of the fears that I might have had about traveling previously was would be about uh, kind of lack of community or lack of uh, connection. But you often find when you're doing these things that there's actually a bunch of other people who are doing the same thing. And in, in, in some way, you rely upon each other more and can count on each other more than when you're in your own hometown sometimes. Is that something that you found? Absolutely. Yeah, because you're, you're bonded around a common goal, and it's kind of a tough goal, right? Not everybody's doing it. There's weather and boats and things, you know. So you all have these common shared challenges, and your conversations revolve around, well, how did you solve this challenge? Um, and that, I think that creates a really strong bond. Um, I mean, we see it with our neighbors here in Philadelphia. Whenever something happens in our neighborhood, there's a break-in or there's something like that, everybody comes together. And it just strengthens the community. Um, that's happening every day among cruisers who are sailing across oceans um, because it's every day is a bit challenging. Yeah, because in, in everyday comfortable life on land uh, in your hometown, situations where you really need other people's help don't come up quite as often. But when you're traveling then every little simple thing can be a challenge. Like, oh, where can I find my favorite soda or you know, something right. like that? And then it becomes yeah. a thing that people help each other with. That yeah. strengthens provisioning, the bonds. Provisioning is a huge part of it, right? You get out in the middle of nowhere. How do you find you know, a fresh tomato or a decently priced you know, bag of flour? Well, you know, that boat found it. Where'd you find it? And then you, start, you share that information. Yeah, something I always find enjoyable about living in foreign countries and talking with uh, other expats anyway is yep. solving these simple, these seemingly simple challenges can mm -hmm. can really make you happier in a way. Yep. I could see a uh, an objection that a lot of people have or, or would have or something that would hold them back. Would They would think, well, you know, if I've got kids, I, I need doctors. Healthcare is going to be uh, a tough thing how how was that handled or, or, did, or was that a fear that you had going into it yeah i mean i think everybody has that fear it's it's mostly for us it was mostly around what if there's an emergency what if someone gets hurt and it's not just kids it's you know it's equally across adults in fact on some level we were more worried about um myself getting hurt uh or having a problem in the middle of the ocean since i'm you know, mostly responsible for the boat, although Lonnie the can skipper, say yeah. the skipper, yeah. Um, but, you know, that's, that is definitely one of the dangers present when you go long-distance sailing. And, you, um, you know, there's a lot of preparation you can do about that. You can get certified in CPR and first aid, um, which we did a little bit of. You can also carry with you a lot of medical supplies, which we did. Um, a sat phone is really helpful. Two sat phones is also really helpful so that if something happens and you have all the supplies ahead of time, you can call a doctor. So we have a really good friend. We live in Philadelphia, which is a medical capital of the, of the country. There's so many hospitals here and a lot of our friends are docs. So we had one really good friend who's a pediatrician, an ER pediatrician, and uh, she consulted with us on the medical kit that we should carry with us. It was a couple thousand dollars worth of stuff and if we had a problem, we dial her up, uh, and she would walk us through whatever we needed. Kind of like, here are the most likely problems that you might have, and the, yeah. 
the equipment yeah. that you might need to yeah. attend to any of those. And that's, of course, when you're in an arcane environment like in the middle of the ocean. You know, we 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 didn't have knock on wood we didn't have any big emergencies but we had a few instances where we had to see the doctor i can't remember cleo my middle daughter had something in the galapagos and um we called our friend cynthia and she was like well just go to the local clinic so we went to the local clinic it was amazing you know they were so friendly and nice now we weren't getting a heart transplant right um mm -hmm. But just for basic medical care, you know, it was not a problem. And in a, in and this was a little bit off the grid in the Galapagos. If you're really on the grid, like in Cartagena, Colombia, or or you know, Panama City or something, you can get fine medical care. So now that you've been on land for a while, are you itching to uh, get back to sea? Is that going to happen? Yeah, it's uh, the itch has come quickly. <laughs> I mean, do you just kind yeah. of find that, in a way, because you have tackled all of these fears that might hold back a lot of people um, and have discovered which ones are realistic and which ones aren't, most of them not being realistic, does, does it make it a little difficult to, to relate to the concerns of uh, most landlubbers? Um, I don't know if it makes it hard to relate to the concerns of landlubbers, but it, it definitely frees my mind up for a lot more dreaming of where I want to go next. Like if I, I think with it, with someone else, they might think, oh God, it would be so great to go sailing through Indonesia. For me, that's a reality. Like I can imagine, I have friends who are doing it right now. Um, mm -hmm. I know what it would take to do that. And I can really dig into that dream in a kind of process manner, like, okay, well, how would I do that? How would I get there? What would I see? It, so yeah, that, that tends to make you a bit itchy for doing the next thing that you want to do. And for us, it happens to be sailing through Indonesia. What's the biggest compromise you've had to make in getting where you are today? Oh my God, biggest compromise. Wow. Is it possible to say I've had to make no compromises? <laughs> Some people have said that. I, 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 they might be fooling themselves. No. but Yeah, no, they're fooling. I mean, every day is a compromise, right? I mean, just being here is a compromise. I, I, I would much prefer to be sailing. When we were sailing, we had to compromise. Um, you know, there were days where I had to sail to an island for a meeting, um, but I would much rather have just stayed on an island. Um, School is a compromise. There are days when, you know, Stella wanted to only do history and, but, you know, she has to do some algebra as well. So it's, I think that's a healthy part of life. And as a parent, it's something you teach kids is how do you manage compromise? How do you make those compromises without them being capital C compromises that mm -hmm. like, you know, deaden your life or, or drag it down and, and, you know, you can manage compromises and you can manage them in a certain direction to make your life really interesting and cool. So I think, you know, yeah, I'm tempted to say, oh, I haven't had any compromises, but in fact, I have them every day. I just consciously try to manage them in a way so that I can have a, a, a great, you know, really interesting life. Your mental framing of the compromises is, sounds like a healthy one, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. I, I like that. <laughs> I like that, that phrase of it. When have you left money on the table? 
Oh, my God. Well, I mean, the biggest one was during the dot-com um, boom when Amazon, I was working in books at the time. I was in publishing, and a little-known company called Amazon.com floated an IPO. And I went to my father-in-law, who was much older and smarter in financial matters than me, and said, God, we ought to buy a couple thousand dollars worth of this. I think it's going to be big. And he was like, books on the Internet? <laughs> So that was a situation where you kind of uh, had an opportunity that, that didn't, yeah. that didn't pan out. Was there any times when you uh, intentionally left money on the table in, in exchange for something else that you valued? Wow. Um, well, I mean in in the business right so we could run our business in a much uh more profit driven way um i could be working many more hours and um taking a lot bigger salary uh, but i intentionally leave money in the business so that i can have for a number of reasons one is i you know it is a social enterprise or it has that component to it it's a b corp so in order to, to have a healthy you know, ecosystem of, of people here, we invest money into their lives. Um, but also I leave money on the table in the business so that it grows in value, which is probably not technically leaving money on the table, but it's not you know, taking rewards uh, that maybe I, I should take. Uh, and probably there are entrepreneurs out there that would scoff at that and say, no, you should, you should take every penny of, of revenue out of it. But I also take a lifestyle out of it that is that's really important to me. So you know, it is it is a lifestyle business um, on some level, and I don't think I'm not ashamed of that. I don't think it's uh, there's anything wrong with that. I also think it's a high value business as well, and it's growing very well right now. So I have no complaints. That's great. Yeah. What was the last book you read that changed the way you saw something? Well, the book I'm reading right now is um, 1177 BC, which is a, a book about the collapse of civilization um, in um, the end of the second, or, yeah, second millennium BC. And the really cool thing about it was how globally interconnected um, all these civilizations were around the Fertile Crescent and the Mediterranean. And it, you know, it, that's changed the way I think about that period. I, I you know, I'm a, a bit of a, of a, a Latinist and, and, you know, tend to focus on Roman culture and everything from then. But it ends up that the world was, was almost as cosmopolitan as it was during Imperial Rome about uh, 1,500 years before, which is a huge amount of time. So that, that just reminded me that, that history, the history of people is incredibly varied and, and deep. Uh, and there's a lot more that I don't know about it. Has that made you think differently about uh, about today's world and the way it's interconnected or anything? Um, that book, not in particularly. Um, let's see. In terms of thinking about uh, today's world, hmm. No, doesn't sound like it. <laughs> not for that gonna, book, right? That's the, it's the, how that not, book changes the way you see, right? 
Yeah, that, that mainly just me, uh, has me thinking more about how, how history is different. Hmm. Um, I don't know, a book that would make me think a little differently about today's world. It's going to sound funny, but Against the Country, have you read that book? I haven't. Oh, I haven't my read gosh. Any of these just, books, so. Absolutely hilarious, but it's just an, a really bitter, bitter account of rural life in America. <laughs> And I'm, I'm a bit of an urbanist. I live in cities, so, um, you know, sometimes I can be a little bit um, conceited about country life. But this book just really just <laughs> eviscerated country life. It, it, and it's beautifully, beautifully written. Makes you more confident in not uh, living in the country. Is that... Yeah. <laughs> do I, you... do, I do love me a, a tropical island, though. Oh, yeah. Me too. I don't know <laughs> if I like not seeing anything for 18 days quite as well as as you do but i haven't experienced that yet i guess i i want to do one of those 10 day uh vipassana meditation retreats it might be a similar oh god yeah i think those are even more intense you know, because at least on the boat i mean i had my kids and and my wife around there's stuff going on i'm talking to myself right but that that is that is serious stuff all i don't know that stimulation I... <laughs> going on on the boat and there's cognitive challenges going on things to yeah, yeah. to distract you from your in, internal dialogue yes mm -hmm. or is it internal monologue maybe i don't know yep. depends on how many personalities you have <laughs> well you're having a you're having a dialogue the whole time with yourself about um about weather what's going to happen mm -hmm. what's ha what's coming towards us How's the current moving? How's the boat moving? How can I optimize? You're optimizing the boat nonstop for 18 days, every minute of the day. So you're, you know, you're that. That's what you're talking about, which is meditative in and of itself. I know. I've I've looked at uh, a radar storm system or something before, and looked at the Atlantic, say, and and thought to myself, if I was in a boat, there, how would I get past any of that? It's all just straight down. Uh, how, how do you avoid stuff like that? You just have to go through. Well, no, I mean, you, it kind of depends on how fast your boat is. So this is a case where faster is safer on some level. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if the storm overtakes you, then sometimes you want a slower, more stable, sturdy boat. So you, you kind of go for these, this compromise. There you go. There's a compromise. Yeah. Um, so we found a boat that was sturdy but also fast. Um, not as sturdy as some, not as fast as others. So if you have a fast boat and you, see, you have enough good data, good information, and you have a sense of where it's going, you can move out of the way of a storm, hopefully. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, do you make your bed? Uh, I do not. I do not. I, I only have one sheet, and I get up first, and then when Lonnie gets up, she just pulls the sheet up. Okay. So it's kind of made, but not, it's not a ritual yeah. for you or anything. But I don't make it. So uh, do you have a final message for folks who are listening who uh, might look up to your ability to define success for yourself? It's easier than you think. Right. I mean, that's that's sort of what I learn in life. You always the mountain is always much higher from the bottom. And then when you get to the top, it's thrilling. And, you know, you might it might be vertiginous, but it's um, it was easier than you thought. Yeah. 
And where can people find out more about you or about Context? So Context is easy to find, um, just contexttravel.com. Um, we have a Facebook page and Twitter and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and I'm there. Um, I'm on LinkedIn, too. Pretty easy to find. There's a, a writer, I think he's a crime writer, named Paul Bennett. And then there's the head of design at IDEO uh, is also Paul Bennett. So kind of pull those guys out. But I usually come up number three. You've got a few Bennett's to deal with. Uh, I know that this is only this is your last name, not your first, but I, it made me think of Pride and Prejudice. There's a, <laughs> there was a Mr. Bennett. Is that the character? Yep. Okay. So you're not any of those people. Yeah, Elizabeth Bennett. Yeah. No. Uh, okay. <laughs> Elizabeth Bennett. That's right. Okay. It's been a while since I read that book. Anyway, Paul, your your story is really inspiring, and I hope that it will inspire others to uh, try things they might not otherwise. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. Hey, it was great to great to see you again. We need to get together. I I need to get down to Medellin. Yeah, sail on down. I would uh, well sail down to Cartagena. And I'll 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 meet you one sixteenth of the way. <laughs> That's very very kind of you. So there we have it. Before I go, I gotta ask. Do you like books? If you do, I'd love to send you my book recommendations. About 90% of them will be nonfiction on subjects spanning from biographies to neuroscience. Just go to academy.net slash reading, sign up, and you'll get my first set of recommendations right away. You'll be supporting the show if you buy any of those books through the links in the email. This has been Love Your Work, and I'm David Cadavy. The theme music for this show is CNU, performed by The Album Leaf, courtesy of Sub Pop Records. Love Your Work is a production of Academy Inc.